You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. All right, this is the last plenary of the day, and it is going to be very lively. <laughs> my, my colleagues here. No, it really is going to be, and it's going to be very engaging with you, the audience. This is called Key Takeaways, Gaps and Priorities for Research, Policy, and Practice to End Conflict Related Sexual Violence. And so uh, we are very lucky and honored to welcome back to the U.S. Institute of Peace. I think the last time you gave a speech here, it was at, in 2015 on feminist foreign policy. Remember that? <laughs> anyway, so I am very pleased to welcome to the podium here, Marco Volstrom. She's the former UN Special Rep on sexual violence and conflict, uh, in conflict. And she's also the former Minister of Foreign Affairs of Sweden. She is a friend to all. She has taken up the issue of CRSV in a way that is global and persistent. That's what I think of you, Margot. Persistence in all your leadership. Thank you for coming back. Thank you for joining us for these two days. The floor is yours, and then we'll invite your panel up. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, and I would like to start by saying a warm thanks to Kathleen and her team. Uh, we have come together in very dark times. That's almost banal to say that uh, we live in, in perilous times. Uh, but you are providing a safe spot for us here, a safe place. We uh, have uh, made and found uh, old and new friends here. And uh, kindness, a common goal, and also very constructive ideas. And that means something. This is so important in those days that we can be. So thank you so much, uh, Kathleen, and, and your, your team that, that you're having us uh, here. Uh, I think we should give uh, her and the USIP and Lise, uh, of course, uh, an applause. I will encourage throughout people to, to do applause. I, I like that. I think we can. <laughs> move around a little. So this is, uh, of course, uh, what an opportunity to make sure that during this uh, particular uh, session that we can take stock, we can discuss what did we learn during these first two days. Uh, there is another day tomorrow, of course, but what will we take away from, from here? And I will soon present uh, the uh, the panel, and I will ask them if they can maybe give us a to-do list. I'm fond of to-do lists. <laughs> so what would their short or longer to-do lists uh, from uh, now on, what would it look like? Uh, my own to-do list, 
uh, and I will just say a, a few words about that. Of course, uh, justice uh, is at the core of, of this. We are still fighting impunity for these types of crimes. Uh, and as I said yesterday, uh, we are in the different uh, um, situations that we have, like in Ethiopia or, or other uh, countries around the world. Women are still not there. They are not invited, and it means that impunity for these types of crimes can, can continue. So the whole uh, judicial process um, to define what justice is, uh, also in a broader uh, aspect, um, has been in one of the, the previous uh, session was about that. And I think that th this is definitely something that we will have to continue to work on. I would say m more money in the hands of women more money in the hands of women. And could you believe it? Robina, am I pronouncing your name right? Robina said that $50 meant a lot to women, where she comes from, where she's active. Meanwhile, the world spends more than $2 trillion on militarization. $2 trillion. Go to buying more weapons or modernize the the weaponry that, that we have. And I, I truly believe in, in also smaller projects like the one we've heard of. Uh, and if you put more money in the hands of women, we know that we'll go to um, feeding children or building uh, sustainable uh, societies. Uh, so that is uh, one point on my to-do list. I believe also that technology that we should be able to use more technology, modern technology, to protect women in different situations. When they are uh, refugees, when they are internally displaced, everybody these days have a mobile phone. Why can't we use it to make sure that we keep women safer and that we use the best of uh, technology? Uh, if we have sort of alarm uh, or... Uh, um, a special number that you can call if you need help or just for information and what have you. We have, do, we have not done enough to make sure that we use uh, modern technology. And, and these days you, you can, of course, via satellite, you can find uh, one person on, on this planet. So um, we ought to do more. I haven't seen many good ideas about this, but I hope that that will come. And I insist on us being able to measure results. I think it is so important to describe also the successes that, that we've had and the fact that during, let's say, the last 15 years, more has been done on, on these uh, issues and the issue of conflict-related sexual violence than, than under the previous history of, of mankind. So uh, already we should also measure some of these and, and value some of these results. That's very, very important. I was asked by a newspaper to uh, write something about, and this will be kind of more political, but I think that we, we are meeting not in a vacuum. We are meeting in a, in a situation um, uh, and, and in a dire situation for this, this world. And we have to understand what, what that means. You can hear that I'm so, I have such a bad cold, so we'll see if we can manage. So uh, I was asked to make a forecast for, for next year. 
And I wrote the following. Let's see if I can read it here. I think that 2024 will bring anxiety and anger. Anxiety over the existential threats, climate change and water shortage, and we know that that affects women uh, uh, first and foremost. Wars and nuclear weapons. The geopolitical challenges and changes so profound that they make us feel the tectonic plates move. Anger over growing inequalities, lousy governance and leadership, corruption, and thereby failing democracies. And when we are talking about women, they make up half of the world's population. This is a matter of democracy as well. If they cannot participate, the world spends more on militarization than on dealing with climate change. So the outlook is bleak, has to be. But do we have to go over the cliff shouting whoopee? Women all over the world have seen their rights being taken away or restricted in many countries. Be it basic human rights like education, healthcare, the right to decide over their own bodies, or being listened to. And in Latin America, as we've heard, women are being killed, so many women are being killed that it is it's being called femicide. Sexual violence is a global scourge that, despite nice words in resolutions, continue to destroy lives. I believe that the coming year will mean make it or break it for women in Afghanistan and Iran. The massive oppression has to stop. It cannot continue. Because women fight in Ukraine, <clears throat> the Middle East, in Africa, and everywhere women fight. They carry children, food, responsibilities. They protect, they protest uh, and take the lead, making up half of the world's population and wanting to be defined and treated uh, as more than victims. I place my hope for next year, for 2024, in women when they are seated around the negotiating tables, being elected to political posts, leading companies, families, or organizations, battling injustice and sexual violence, more options uh, and perspectives are brought to bear. Democracy functions better when women are proportionately represented and women's participation should not be a novelty, but normalcy. And to say something about hope, because that is also important. And you remember that there is a beautiful poem by Emily Dickinson, and she says, hope is that thing with feathers that perches in your soul and sings a tune without the words and never stops at all. 
All right, so let me make that uh, just an introduction, a little bit uh, um, sort of overall political, but I think we need to put ourselves in a bigger picture as well when we also talk about conflict-related sexual violence. I want to invite uh, my panelists uh, to the scene, please. And excuse me for being such a, you know, coughing. So, just look at these fantastic people uh, on the scene, and um, uh, I don't. Maybe I don't have to to present them, uh, you have seen them around, but uh, I, I will still mention their names and maybe you will see it also on the, on the screen. Uh, we have uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Maisha Alam, who is the Vice President of Research Foreign Policy Analytics. We have Victor uh, Madrigal Bolos, Eleanor Roosevelt Senior Visiting Researcher from Harvard Law School. We have Natalie Smith, head of the Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict Initiative team from the UK. Um, Nadine Tunasi, manager, survivors uh, speak out, freedom from torture. Uh, and she's also from the United Kingdom Preventing Sexual Violence in Conflict Initiative. And of course, Ambassador Melan Verveer. She has been presented previously as, as well. She's a, a tireless uh, Fight for fighter for women's rights, uh, and uh, so I I was thinking I would like to invite you to just uh, give a short. We'll take the first round, and I'll ask you to just give a short to do list. What do you think you have, you will be taking away from our two days or three days as it will be here at the U.S. Uh, Institute of Peace? So where where do we start? Maybe uh, I'll go this way. Please. <laughs> okay, I get to start again. Okay, thank you. Um, so I do have a do list. Um, obviously, I've been listening a lot, and I'm really grateful for the conversation and really the the richness of the subject. I've written my 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 point uh, down, and um, the first thing I'd like to talk about um, as a do list or key takeaway uh, on the research is that obviously in the concurrent conversation, there was a lot of um, issue with consent uh, from survival and the way we, we seek survival to engage in uh, consent when we are researching about the experiences about, or about what has happened. And I think that we need to work harder. We heard it over and over how we need to develop consent forms that do not only protect the researcher but also ensure that um, the organization responsible is had it, uh, into account should there be anything or should anything happen to the survivor. I know a lot of people mentioned how confidentiality is already mentioned, but it's not enough. We just need to have really the researcher head accountable. That way, you know, it's, it's more balanced. And also one key uh, note on that is that we've noticed that quite often this research questionnaire, many survivors who have taken part in those conversations have mentioned how the, the, the questionnaire were very uh, long and they found it very hard to engage 
we survived. And the questions were quite technical, and then we needed to have questionnaires that were easy to understand and did not have so many jargons that way. Uh, survivors who were participating were not so overwhelmed. So really we need to involve survivors in the designing of those questionnaires and really involve survivors from the initial you know, planning of those ones. And there was, uh, this is really, you know, staying in my heart, a point made about local researchers taking the feedback, you know, into account. We need to ensure that the local researchers who are working on the ground in conflict zone are listened to when they are feeding back to the donors. Somebody mentioned how they were told they had no right to question the, the World Health Organization, you know, and I found it very appalling because I do think they have the reality on the ground and they should be able to, to contribute and really share. We need to actually respect the, the funding and, and perhaps really redesign the way, you know, they are able to, 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 to input. And I've also, I'm going to steal that phrase. Uh, someone mentioned that you cannot kill a snake with a, with a long stick, you know. I still remember that. So really, I think the shorter stick would do a better job. And we don't have enough representation of survival with uh, physical impairment. And I think this was also crucial. We've heard a lot of things, but I think that we need to make sure that the issue of all survival are well represented. And we address the multi-challenges and also taking into account the context you know, in which survivors have experienced sexual violence. On policy, we do have a challenge, you know, with conflict-related sexual violence being visible. And really, personally, I, I do appreciate all the international and local effort, the involvement of all the stakeholders. However, we need those policies really to punish uh, rape as a serious crime. We need to strengthen the international legal framework so that survivors can see perpetrator head accountable properly for the crime. And I think you mentioned earlier on that justice is still a big issue. We have noticed that we had a lot of conversation. We have multidisciplinary discussion here, but I'm from the DRC. My country has been in conflict for a long time. And we know that the businesses, the mining industry is also really contributing to this problem. But they have not taken part in this conversation. We need them to understand the impact sexual violence has on victims. And I think the best way is really to have them on this forum and really understand what is going on. I think I should stop there for now. Thank, Thank you. Continue. Right, thank thanks, um, and thanks very much, Nadine, for that. So, um, so yes, Margot, thank you. Um, as you say, I'm I'm uh, head of the the PSVI team in the UK, but I'm I'm basically a month into that role. So, I wanted to start with some humility um, that I'm very conscious that I'm surrounded by people with really, really deep expertise from their experience, from their academic, from their their policy making work, uh, and also start with some gratitude to USIP and everyone here because I think it's um, just been the most extraordinary two days so far of learning and sharing and the kind of depth of conversation um, and the commitment to, to work together on this has, has really been invaluable. Um, but with that said, I mean, perhaps with my kind of somewhat fresh um, perspective, I thought I'd reflect what my kind of 
top three takeaways from the discussion and, and therefore, without presuming to give a to-do to anyone else, what, what, what am I taking away from that in terms of as the UK government, kind of what we should be doing? Um, and so for the first of those kind of three takeaways, I, I wanted to go back to the framing of the very first plenary um, around the sense that CRSV is not inevitable. And I think that kind of North Star, I suppose, in, in how we're framing and approaching things felt to me kind of a, something really important. And although preventing CRSV, it's, you know, it's the kind of really tricky and complicated issue, um, looking at social norms, understanding um, the difference between different contexts and perpetrators and what that means. This is really, really not easy work, but I think what I would take away from that for my to-do is really commitment to kind of looking at that difficult prevention question in, in everything we're doing um, and, and kind of not shying away from it, I suppose. Um, and then the second kind of takeaway for me is really around um, the importance of being genuinely, meaningfully, fully survivor-centered in everything that we're doing. And I think it was, it's been so heartening through this whole conversation that I think there's been absolute unanimity on the importance of having survivors at the center of the conversation. And I really um, go back to, I think, Colbassia's point in the first plenary, which, you know, which was around the question isn't oh, what do policymakers want, it's what do survivors need. Um, but I think although there's that, that consensus, actually getting into the detail of, okay, well, what do we mean by being survivor-centered? There have been so many really important panel discussions on that over these last two days, making sure that it's not a buzzword, but is something um, you know, that's genuinely meaningful. And again, you know, for PSVI, it's something that I think we've been on a learning journey on, we're really committed to, but we know there's more we have to continue to improve you know, with the um, leadership of um, Nadine and Kalbasia as our survivor champions and our survivor advisory group, many of whom are here today. But I think the to-do is to continue to learn on that, to listen to the perspectives and, and the insights. And then very quickly, finally, I think my takeaway has just been the value in having this conversation, bringing people from different spheres and disciplines together, from research, from policy, from practice. But also within those disciplines, you know, I think speaking just as a, as a bureaucrat, you know, it's so easy to be, um, you know, you're in the peace and justice lane or you're in the humanitarian lane or the gender lane or the rights lane. And we, you know, we don't often enough come together and think about how actually all of these pieces are so critical. And so spaces like this, to have the opportunity to connect informally are really important. But I think for me, I also want to take away how do we as PSVI you know, continue to use our systems and our structures to make sure um, that, that we're really kind of bringing all those perspectives and, and voices together in everything that we're doing. Thank Thanks. You. Thank, thank you. So we go on. Sure. Thank you, Margot. And um, first, I just want to say thank you to Kathleen and the USIP team for bringing us together for these important days of discussions. I remember vividly being here 10 years ago when Missing Peace was launched and participating in that. Um, and it's the tremendous the work that you've you've done over over that decade. Um, and also for me, it's a it's a real personal privilege and honor to be here with some of my own professional and intellectual heroes, um, including Master Milan Verveer and Professor Elizabeth Wood, who you heard from yesterday. 
Um, so maybe just two or three things to answer your question, Margot. The first thing that comes to mind, and reflecting on Ambassador Gita Rao Gupta's call to action yesterday during her speech, which is ultimately if you're talking about preventing and ending conflict-related sexual violence, what you have to get at the heart of is preventing, resolving, and overcoming conflict. That is the business that we are in, and we need to not lose sight of that, because hopefully in 10 years, Kathleen, you will bring us back together, and we will have made a tremendous amount of progress but that can only happen if we have moved into new ways of resolving and preventing conflict. And that means investing in mediation and investing in, in, in peace building and making sure that throughout those processes, CRSV is always integrated. And from that, it takes me to the issue of transitional justice. And there have been some really rich discussions on that over the course of the last couple of days. And transitional justice is my first love. My first book was on transitional justice now 10 years ago. And when I think about where that field has come in the last couple of decades, I think one of the things that's really important and we've heard over and over again here is our understanding, our conceptualization, not just theoretical, but practical of transitional justice and justice in particular has to be broadened. Somebody um, said in one of the sessions over the course of yesterday that more and more transitional justice takes place in the absence of transition. And so what does that mean for conflict-related sexual violence? Well, what it means at a minimum is that reparations must be part of how we think about addressing CRSV. And that includes everything from medical care immediate for immediate injuries and long-term morbidities, whether that's fistulas or otherwise. Um, that means psychosocial support for survivors, again, in the immediate and continuing basis when we know that those legacies live for decades on. Um, and also viable and sustainable livelihoods that help survivors overcome precarity with purpose. And so if we're going to think about justice as beyond outside of the courtroom, what does that look like? Well, reparations have to be front and center for that. And then the, the third thing I would say in response to your question and reflecting on what hasn't been discussed, I think, adequately in the last couple of days, at least where I've been able to, to participate, is how does CRSB fit into and with the digital domain? And in particular, two things I would mention. First, and this is especially for those who are working with organizations like PHR or the International Criminal Court or ICRC, in other words, which is the digital preservation of evidence in the age of hybrid warfare and as cyber operations increasingly intersect with kinetic warfare. When you are documenting and collecting sensitive data, how are you protecting that from things like ransomware attacks and otherwise that can not only re-traumatize survivors of CRSV, but expose them to all kinds of new risks? And relatedly, and this came up a little bit, but I think to, to your point about a to-do list, um, when we are living in the age of emerging AI and AI-generated misinformation and disinformation, what kind of risks does that create 
for addressing conflict-related sexual violence. Uh, I was here just a few months ago for a uh, conversation that USIP had convened with Bintu Keita, who is the Assistant Secretary General and head of the largest peacekeeping operation in the world, MONUSCO, and she was talking about how even in her mission and for the protection of civilians mandate, including addressing CRSV, um, threats in the digital domain are making it so much harder to do that work. Um, so I think that's definitely you know, where our field needs to focus more deliberately. So I'll pause there with those three things, but thank Perfect. you. thank you. So there we got a, a, a new topic, uh, for sure, to put with, with AI. Victor, you tried to say that you needed more time being a Latin uh, man, but, um, but we, are very tough. we are very tough, so <laughs> your, your turn. I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as I can. Well, and of course, thank the US Institute of Peace for this invitation. It's a great honor for me to be here. So my task um, for the to-do list, uh, the first one I think is the exercise that I myself have tried to do during those, these two days. I come to this conversation having done 10 years in uh, the field of sexual orientation, gender identity, and having prepared uh, my second last report to the General Assembly on uh, conflict-based uh, violence and discrimination uh, affecting um, persons on, the, on those bases. And, um, and I actually find that there is a significant point of connection between the findings that that report actually led me to uh, formulate, including, of course, the frailties in data collection systems that uh, not only have frailties because of their inherent design, which in very many cases doesn't take into account the way people define themselves and the way in which they self-identify uh, across the world, but also in the frailties that uh, Maisha was describing, which is the risks that they create, not only because of the technological possibilities, but because of the political volatility of the topics that we work in. Um, it, it was very often in my time as independent expert that the day after an election, I would get a call from a human rights organization working in a difficult country saying, the next thing that they've told us is that they're going to come and get our computers. Uh, the police is going to come and seize the computers with the data that we have there. And of course, some of my friends uh, in uh, Washington or in Geneva said, well, why don't they put everything in the cloud? And I said, well, in the reality is they usually don't have electricity a number of hours a day, so this is not a very viable option. Um, the second thing that I wanted to mention is that uh, I believe that there is a significant pending task in developing research on what the systemic causes that enable and perpetuate stigma uh, are. And I'm interested in speaking about uh, legislation that actually enables the policing of sexuality and actually restricts bodily autonomy. I think that these are great enablers of sexual violence. And uh, of course, within that context, in a very specific way, I'm interested in looking at criminalizing legislation on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. That impacts, of course, gay men in the case of homosexuality, but uh, perhaps it's less known that uh, 44 countries criminalize same-sex intimacy between women. And of course, these are enablers and per perpetuate the possibility of uh, sexual violence during conflict. 
Um, the third task is um, cross-referencing with my previous uh, work on the torture rehabilitation field, where I had the honor of working with Freedom From Torture and other organizations, and this notion of the victim-centered approach. And this actually has a lot to do with power. Power of the victims and survivors over their own stories, and the way that their stories are used, the way that the data is actually destined, and things as basic as the ability to be forgotten, which of course in the Eurospace is taken for granted, but nowhere else actually exists in informed consent processes. I also think that it's uh, particularly important to listen to the calls for legal and psychosocial support. Grace was mentioning this quite specifically. Um, and I also think that if we're going to be looking at uh, victim-centered approaches, on understanding where it is that we need to go beyond the binary is an important task. Because not only um, do, do terminologies such as LGBT not necessarily correspond with the way that people identify uh, under, but this impacts, of course, the way in which people self-identify in much wider spaces. So I think that this is an important uh, job to take. Finally, uh, my last report to the General Assembly, which was only last uh, presented last week, actually lays out an agenda of decolonization, uh, which I think is quite fundamental. And, and I just want to give three keywords in relation to this. is decolonization of policy and legal frameworks. Uh, which, of course, uh, are perpetuating gender policing. Uh, it's also the decolonization of terminologies and definitions of identities and the way people occupy public space. And I think quite importantly is the decolonization of knowledge frameworks. Ali was mentioning yesterday the difficulty in epistemic uh, exclusion of researchers from the Global South and the devaluing of knowledge that doesn't follow neatly the axis of valuation that are defined uh, uh, in those terms. My call um, carrying out uh, this work was for uh, an inclusive reading of the Women, Peace and Security agenda, which I think it's possible. And I think that this can take us very uh, deep into the, not only the inclusion, but also the deconstruction of some of these asymmetries of power that are truly um, supported by uh, these preconceptions of gender, of course. So that's a little bit the call that I would make. Thank you. You see, we are opening sort of door after door, <laughs> or door behind door, to understand better what... And many, is. many doors, so because uh, this journey goes on, and I feel no matter how much we have done, uh, there is still so much more to do. And I think it's particularly fitting, and I want to say this, that Margaret Wallstrom is here today on the invitation of USIP because she not only is the mother of the feminist foreign policy and the former foreign minister who is deeply committed to these issues, but she was the first SRSG um, on conflict-related sexual violence. So uh, you belong here, Margaret. I'm going to come at this, and I have lots of things on my to-do list. Uh, but for this first round in no particular order, I really come at this from the policy point of view because I feel that whether it's in the governmental settings or in the multilateral settings, there is a lot of work that goes on in terms of policy development and uh, resolution passing. Um, and yet, as we said in the last panel, a lot of this is um, 
never truly implemented as it needs to be. I often say that we don't need another resolution to 1325. We've got to implement those 10 resolutions that we have, uh, which we're far from doing at this point. Um, so one way of looking at it is the people who are engaged, particularly at a very high diplomatic decision-making level, say in any of the governments uh, in the foreign ministries, are often grappling with issues, like in places that all of you know, uh, that are places of severe conflict today, with a C CRSV component to them. And yet, in doing Ukraine or Myanmar or Sudan or whatever, that is not part of what they work on in finding the solutions to those conflicts. Uh, and we've got to find a way um, to more holistically uh, ensure that people who are in those very positions understand all of the tools and all of the challenges uh, that they have to address uh, in a coherent way. Uh, and similarly at the UN, you know, we watch very carefully and follow and uh, try to engage uh, in the Security Council um, debates on the critical areas of conflict. And yet, despite the resolutions, despite what the UN stands for, for example, a resolution on Tigray can barely mention uh, conflict-related sexual violence when it was so central to what was going on there. So we, we have severe challenges in this area, and I think I mention them because they really are important to the eventual outcomes. And I'll tell you a quick story. When I first started uh, in the State Department as ambassador, I, uh, not shortly, not long after that, I was called to testify before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, and the issue on the table uh, was why is the United States not addressing conflict-related sexual violence? There happened to be a female chair of the subcommittee who was asking this question. Uh, when we know, when women go for firewood or when they go for water, that they're absolutely vulnerable. Why can't we protect them? Uh, and I you know, tried to make all of the promises I could, feeling passionately about this issue. And I went back to the department and asked um, for a meeting that would pull in many of the offices that really had engagement on this issue. And the meeting started with the desk officer for the DRC, and Nadine, I hate to tell you the truth, uh, saying, I don't know what women have to do with this issue, why we're even here discussing it. And I thought, we are really a far away from where we need to be. Now, I hope that that's improved dramatically from those days, but it has said a lot to me about the need for training uh, of our officials, but also the need for them to fundamentally understand how they cannot be effective in their jobs unless they address issues like this. Uh, another area are the tools, and there are so many tools in the toolbox many of which have been discussed over the last two days. I will mention one because it's also an area where research policy impact comes together. Uh, we at the Georgetown <coughs> Institute did a study on sanctions that the UN has 
uh, for areas in conflict. There are eight sanction regimes as, as at the time of the study. Uh, and some of them mention conflict-related sexual violence. Some of them do not, but conflict-related sexual violence is a big part of why the sanctions regime was developed because of the conflict going on in those countries. And what it is is a, a tool to get at some of the leaders uh, in ways that personally affect them. Um, and in fact, the United States in the last year has also adopted sanctions to deal with uh, CRSV. But the, the question is, again, the implementation. Uh, I know that Treasury, in terms of the United States, just um, not too long ago uh, raised sanctions on two, uh, two of the leaders in Sudan. Uh, but again, it's a tool. We make much of the tools, and I think we really have to work at ensuring that when they're announced, uh, that there is more to it uh, than the announcement. I was very moved in the last session uh, during the discussion on trafficking. I've worked on trafficking for more years than I can count. And as Siobhan was speaking, I was going through a reel in my head of all of the discussions on trafficking. Horrible problem uh, affects women and men and children, but predominantly women. Uh, some of it is, is for economic, um, in economic uh, ways, uh, domestic servitude. Some of it is sexual violence, et cetera but it is always divorced from a conversation like this. The human rights part rarely comes up, and institutionally, it is in the UNODC, which is the organization of the UN that deals with drugs and crime. Uh, it's a problem. It's a huge criminal problem. There are criminal networks behind this in a big way, but the, the amount of trafficking that goes on in conflict-affected areas. Uh, it's almost a, a beaten path on the part of these criminal networks who see the opportunities, in their view, of women that they can get at um, in, because they're so impacted by the conflict. We've got to do a better job of bringing these uh, two areas together. Um, just very quickly, I have a long list, but I'll just say one more and then we can do another round. Uh, but engaging men has come up in this, in this conference and there are various ways um, to do that. But they, men, and thank you, Victor, have to be a real part of the solution here. And having Natalie on the panel reminds me of um, the former foreign secretary of the UK, um, Mr. Haig, who put this issue as his priority issue in the foreign ministry. That's where PSVI came from, uh, initiated by a male foreign secretary. And others would say to me, oh my gosh, we're in these meetings, G7 meetings or G20 meetings, and he's always raising CRSV. Yes, with good reason. But we need more of that to really move forward. So I'll end there. Thank you.
Thank you all, and I, I definitely believe that the whole issue of uh, sanctions is uh, an important one. I remember more than 10 years ago when I started that we talked about uh, how to design sanctions that would be really effective, like uh, um, preventing people from, from having cattle, <laughs> you know, that, that there were other types of sanctions that would have been more, more effective locally or nationally. So, so I think you have added also to, to that. Uh, but I think also what, we, what you've said is that leadership means something. Leadership on these issues, that somebody dares to, to uh, bring it to the fore, as uh, William Hague did and, and so on. Now, I, th I think we should take a few questions, and then we can have um, a, a second round. And w I want to do it this way, that I will ask, you can ask a, a question, and then you can direct it to, well, all of them, or, or one of the panelists, and then you will get a, a quick reply, and then we take another one, and so we don't collect uh, several questions, but um, make it a little quicker, um, so more people can ask questions. So do you want to, to put a question to, yes. The microphone will arrive. Hi, my name is Mabel Gamer-Medhin and I am a co-founder and president of United Women of the Horn. We are an organization that is trying to get more women from the Horn of Africa into politics, into leadership, so that we're part of negotiations and peace processes. Um, first, I'd like to say thank you so much to both of you for talking about Tigray. We, I'm Tigrayan, I'm sorry I didn't mention that. <laughs> we are a group of women that um, are forgotten a lot, and so I'm really grateful that you guys have both continued to mention Tigray over and over again throughout both days. But um, today I was able to attend the panel on disabilities, and it was um, very powerful, very, very, very powerful and very moving, she was uh, one of the panelists. And I was incredibly disappointed by the lack of attendance. There was maybe under 10 of us. And so I really wanted to make that comment. It really left an impact on me. And I wish we were talking more about disabilities. This is not an area that I work in, but I feel that we should be talking about it a lot. And so I just really wanted to make that comment and really want to say thank you. And I'm grateful for, for being here. Thank you. No, thank you very much. Um, you. Do you want to comment on that, one of you, or? I'll just say that you were right uh, to be uh, wanting to underscore that, because this is an area that doesn't get the attention it deserves, and I think it was terrific that the USIP put it on the agenda. Uh, hopefully more and more uh, governments are going to be responsive. I mean, it's, it's terrible um, to go to places and hear you know, this is a person with disabilities, she, he has no future because of the way they are dispensed with once they have that disability. And any of us can be disabled in an hour if we cross the street and get hit. But this lack of sensitivity and this, this deprivation of human dignity um, and then bring in conflict-related sexual violence on top of that, uh, we really do have to pay more attention. So. Thank you for raising it. Thank you, and Victor. Thank you. Just, just to echo the thanks and perhaps to add one element of information that to me has been very, I've learned a lot from my colleague, the UN Special Rapporteur of Persons Living with Disabilities. 
and the intersection of our mandates was something that we actually worked a lot on. And I wonder, and this is just a question that I ask myself and that I will be reflecting on, to what extent is this, um, uh, I know your comment was specifically in relation to a session, but I am going to go to the larger context of understanding sexual violence that impacts persons living with disabilities. And I wonder to what extent the lack of data that I've discussed with Gerald Quinn, my colleague, uh, also relates to the compounded stigma that persons living with disability face when relating in a social context to their own sexuality because it's very often that the sexuality of persons living with disability is denied. And therefore I wonder to what extent this also impacts the possibility of having data gathering points and research points in relation to this issue. I'm very proud that uh, five days ago, Gerald and I issued a joint statement on the human rights of persons living with disability who are LGBT and uh, hopefully two of the recommendations of the nine that we issue actually impact that existence of research and knowledge uh, also Im uh, impacting sexual violence uh, against persons living with disabilities. Thank you very much. I, I wonder if um, there is another aspect of uh, what you just said also when it comes to these negotiations uh, and, and mediations. Uh, have you uh, have you invited uh, some of these big negotiation or mediation organizations to to discuss? Because <coughs> it seems that they are not very good at introducing the topic of conflict-related sexual violence in their mediation of efforts or negotiation efforts. And I think they need to know better <coughs> what this is about. So maybe that's another uh, uh, big meeting here. <coughs> Please. I would also like to make a comment. I remember, perhaps pick up the, the point about Tigray. I remember when the conflict started in Tigray, there was a survivor from Tigray who reached out to us, Kobasi and I, to join um, uh, a campaign. And I know at the time I, think I had it as a, as a do list, and, and I'm glad I have an opportunity to talk about it again, which was, I know that um, at the time Tigray wasn't, um, amongst the, 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 the key focus country for the Preventing Sexual Violence Initiative. But we raised that with the PSVI team. And um, I, I know that the UK government was able to send our expert on the ground. So one of my actually do list was really, in order to prevent sexual violence, we have to have a mechanism, uh, prevention that really allow us to respond quickly when sexual violence occurring in a country that is not listed as a key priority. And also I think for the Survivor Advisory Group, I'm really so grateful being here at this conference, um, and I think Obasi and I can talk about it with Natalie, how we can be, be more inclusive in the Survivor Advisory Group and really try to have a survivor you know, representation from, from, from that group. Thank you. I wanted to just bring in one additional point um, to your comment about um, uh, persons with disabilities, which is certainly, yes, the targeting of individuals uh, within conflict zones um, who have disabilities already at the onset and then being targeted with sexual violence is, is incredibly important, as, as my fellow panelists have highlighted. But I think the other thing that's really important and part of what I was trying to allude to earlier 
is when sexual violence that's committed during a conflict leaves a person with disabilities, uh, and as I mentioned earlier, whether that's fistulas, whether that's sexualized torture with weapons and otherwise, um, the, the importance of understanding that long impact and how that affects the, the rest of their lives and to integrate that better into this agenda and these conversations I think is really important. Um, for example, in, in my work with Elizabeth Wood on the Rohingya crisis, this is something that we didn't look at with a disability lens and that's our shortcoming, but one of the things we did pay very close attention to um, was how um, women who were targeted with sexual violence, including pregnant women, uh, young women, uh, elderly women, the ways in which they experience mutilation and other forms of um, deliberate ways to leave them physically impaired and not just unable to have children, but also not be able to flee or not be able to have any kind of safety long-term. And that's just one context I, I allude to. And so thank you for your point, but also I agree completely that the, the bringing in the disability lens to this um, agenda is really <coughs> important as well. <coughs> Thank you. I think I saw somebody waving up there. Uh, yes, you, sir. Merci beaucoup. Ce n'est pas, pas une question, mais je voulais juste ajouter un petit commentaire par rapport aux survivants avec handicap. Au fait, ce qui est intéressant, c'est que ce sont des gens qui euh, sont affectés dans deux situations. Ils sont plus prédominants dans les conditions de violence en temps de paix et aussi en temps de guerre. Ils sont plus importants en temps de paix et aussi en temps de guerre. Donc, il faut qu'on attire une attention particulière à ces gens pour essayer un peu, n'est-ce pas, de bien venir en aide et avoir une bonne conduite à tenir. Merci. Merci beaucoup. Um, he was saying that you have to understand that people with the um, disabilities uh, are affected both in peacetime and in wartime, so it adds uh, a special... Uh, um, so, um, yeah, I saw it there. there. <coughs> I, uh, thank you. My name is Bina Nepram, and I'm with U.S. Institute of Peace. I'm also the founder of the Manipur Women Gun Survivors Network. Um, I really agree with Dr. Mahesha. We recently saw how acts of sexual violence and conflict were actually filmed and circulated and made viral. And this happened to women of Manipur, where I come from, which resulted in re-traumatization of what happened to them months ago. And with no end in sight for these survivors, for, that's why digital and technology impact of what happens to us, women, people, must be taken into consideration. Number two, the whole question of, um, Ambassador, uh, I have also mentioned on, in terms of how transnational organized crimes, I did a lot of research on gun running, narco-trafficking, these are the same roots of women trafficking, human trafficking too. And sexual violence in these conflict areas have also happened, which results in my final point of, there are many conflicts that we, have, we are uh, studying today in this conference pass. 
There are 26 known conflicts in the world which are reported every day, but there are 300 more unreported conflicts in the world where sexual violence of women happens every single day. My point to the panelists is, what are we going to do about this forgotten crisis? And Victor, your last point on decolonization. Decolonization, a lot of this work is done by indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. So again, again, my, uh, my request to be more inclusive, I wish to, would like to hear what indigenous women leaders have to say about responding to this crisis. Thank you. Yeah, important and, and relevant questions. Um, difficult, a difficult question as well. Does anybody want to, to come in? Or well, I'll yeah. just, Bina, uh, you've done such amazing work on bringing the situation in Manipur uh, to public attention. It's a horrible, horrible uh, conflict that's been going on uh, that the government has not really addressed or under martial law. It's, you know, just talk to her. It's unbelievably difficult and trying. Um, but I, the point you made, that incident that took place not too long ago uh, of the violence to the women um, in Manipur that was sent out around the world on social media with great pride on the part of the perpetrators, what they had done exacerbating the problem beyond the horrors that it represented in and of itself, uh, should, should focus us all on how we deal with the social media phenomena, as Maisha pointed out, um, because it's, it's this problem. It's also women in politics today. Political violence is occurring in spades on social media. There are so many consequences. Uh, admittedly, there's the good side, but we really do have to address this adverse side. And I think to raise it in this context on CRSV is, is really important to do. Okay, so Victor and then Nadine. Um, just to thank, of course, the, the comment in relation to um, decolonization and, of course, the intervention of communities, uh, and in particular, of course, of indigenous peoples in relation to this work. A very quick note of what could be and hopefully will be a long discussion. What my report aimed to do was to actually bring a contribution to the reasoning as to why the challenging of legislative and policy framework, public policy frameworks is firmly grounded in United Nations objectives, and particularly Article 30, 73 of the Charter which of course, it's a connection that I was hoping to have as a contribution, but in the process of creating that report, I received hundreds of submissions from indigenous peoples, from people representing ancestral identities that actually just made the case that what we would qualify today as gender-inclusive frameworks has been the rule in recorded history. And so I think the point in relation to this is to tap into that diversity in a non-extractive way, but rather in a participative way, to understand exactly what kind of democratization, dismantling of structures that are not useful from human rights approaches, is exactly what I think you're alluding to, that participation that in my view is an essential part of a human rights-based approach, right? Participation, empowerment, accountability, and non-discrimination are the four pillars. A couple of more comments to this, and then we'll have a last question, and then we will run off. 
Well, just just very briefly to pick up on and, and thank you for the point around technology and to thank Maisha for, for raising that initially. I think, um, you know, this is a very difficult new complexity, um, not only through social media, but then the circulation of, of disinformation on social media, of threats. I think this is a really complicated topic for us to, to get into. But without wanting to be too optimistic, you know, I think there's also opportunities around the digital and technology space for, for the CRSV agenda. And uh, I just before this panel was, was downstairs in the virtual reality um, scene uh, looking at the Yazidi context, and it's it's unbelievably powerful and you know you think you understand a little bit about the context but it really brought it home so I mean really to advertise that if people haven't gone um, and we're also as PSVI working with the International Criminal Court with virtual reality at the moment trying to kind of use that technology to um, help witnesses and survivors to understand in, in real terms exactly what that experience would, would be like so um, I think there are some opportunities there and I think there's much more to, to understand so thanks. Yeah, thank you, Vina, for, for your comments, and uh, both about Manipur in particular, but also um, forgotten crises in the world. And, you know, it reminds me, um, when I was formerly Ambassador Revere's deputy at the Institute, we had had a journalist scholar come as a visiting fellow, and um, it culminated a book uh, called Mother, Where Is My Country, um, which, if you haven't read, is fantastic, and it covers many of the forgotten conflicts in India and including in that region. But one of the points that's really important in that book, and I don't think we've talked enough about over the course of the last couple of days, is when policies are incredibly destructive and they enable conflict-related sexual violence and impunity for those. Um, I am not an expert on India, but I know enough about AFSPA to know what destructive impacts that's had on protection of civilians and on women um, during armed conflicts and also in enabling um, sexual violence. And I think, you know, for us, all of us, to be paying attention to policies that are enacted, including by democratic governments, that perpetuate or enable the perpetuation of conflict-related sexual violence is incredibly important. Thank you. One last question. Um, my name is Helene Dukem from the University of Antwerp, and I have a question for all of the panel. It, but it was something that uh, Dr. Alam brought up, the, the promise of reparations, which we've, several people have mentioned. And um, my research is about the former Yugoslavia, and I've looked at the, the, the reparations process in, in Croatia and Kosovo, and then you see that it, this is really dependent on political will. It came far too late after the conflict. And then you also see that it involves uh, a difficult process whereby kind of new hierarchies of victims are created because it advantages certain victims over others, not the ones that belong to the enemy group, uh, things like that. There's also discussions about the budget, of course. And then also the, the question of how to prove that you have actually been a victim, for which people then need to come to a commission where they have to tell their story again and kind of give proof. So there are also people who do not get the reparations because they are not believed or because they don't have to prove. So I wonder whether that is actually the answer, because we seem to be very hopeful, but I, I don't know if that, if that is really the case. So I, I would like to hear what the other panelists think about that. That's an excellent, excellent question. I think we will um, make a, a final round. 
So we start here again. Would you, do you want to say, say something? Okay. I don't think I'm able to answer that, but I, I may touch on my final comment. Obviously, for the past days, I've heard a lot about um, transitional justice. I just wanted to really highlight that while it's important um, to bring a nation to reconcile, sexual violence really destroy nation, <coughs> divide community. I think for me, one keynote is also considering that when we are um, offering or discussing transitional justice, we need to make sure that it's survival-centered. It needs to be a person's choice to really take that route and also involve survivor in uh, all survivors, including children born of war, in the peace um, negotiation. I'm really sorry, I, I couldn't answer that. So well, thank you very much. Thank you. Well, yes, very, very quick final comment from me as well that I mean, links a little bit, but I think related to that, and more generally, I think something I've taken away from, from the full two days is just around the importance of context, the importance of recognizing the kind of heterogeneity of the experience of different survivors, of different perpetrators, and, and related as well to um, to what that means in terms of redress and, and other areas. And I think there's been a, a number of really um, valuable, important conversations on intersectionality um, in that context, and, and I'll be taking that away from today. Yeah, um, I think because you're... <laughs> comment was in, in re, or question was in response to some comments I made. I think, to be clear, I wasn't suggesting that that is a one-size-fits-all approach, right? So you mentioned ICTY and, and sort of the former Balkans, and you know, I worked on the residual mechanism there, and it, it's, I'm not suggesting that what works there works in Kenya, TJRC, where I also worked and works in, name it, you know, special courts and so on. I think it's really important to, as I said, broaden our understanding of justice and make sure that in addition to punitive and retributive measures, we're keeping reparative and restorative measures in check. And helping survivors ultimately move forward with their lives. Um, you know, I will tell you as a, as a final comment, I, um, I was working at the UN in 2008 when Security Council Resolution 1820 was adopted, which was the first ever resolution to deal with conflict-related sexual violence. And I was inside the Security Council when that debate took place and then the vote happened. And it's easy to lose track of how much progress we have made in the last almost 16 years since then. Um, and especially when we are looking for transformation, it's easy to lose sight of incremental progress. But incremental progress, and including on transitional justice, is important and must be built on. And so I would just encourage that as we work together, we also take the long view. And uh, hopefully I can build on that uh, uh, aspect uh, that uh, you were making in relation to not one size fits all. Rosa Maria made a really good point in one of the panels uh, about trying to keep always uh, an open understanding of what justice means for the survivor or victim. And I think that uh, what the challenge that we have, and I say this having instructed a number of cases when I was head of litigation at the Inter-American Commission, is that that understanding changes. In justice processes at international level, uh, at least in the regional system, when you have a, a, a survivor or victim having gone through a process that is 10, 12 years long, it might be that at the beginning expectations were some, then in the middle they will change, and then you know, towards the end they will change. I had the harrowing experience uh, as head of litigation to actually talk to victims that would say to me, I've forgotten the reason why I'm here. 
And uh, you know, seeing that you know the system was having the expectation that this case would be emblematic for non-repetition, and then having to say, well, you have the absolute right of actually saying you don't want to go on. So I think that just having that possibility, uh, having that understanding, and of course having the system have these points of inflection where there are certain absolutes, and the, that's why I mentioned before, the ownership of the victim, of the survivor, of their story. And, and the reason why I keep on saying that is because I've seen far too many times that that ownership is lost, and that pressures are exercised with good intention, but with disastrous results. So I would say just answering to Rosa Maria's call to ensure that we keep an understanding of what victims and survivors believe justice is for them at a particular point in time is crucial. Thank you. And, and I, I think obviously keeping our attention always on the survivor. Now I had a, a, a really uh, emotional experience not that long ago in Bosnia uh, where a woman uh, was attending an event I was at, and the organizer said to me, uh, she would like to speak to you. Could you spend a minute or so with her? So when I talked to her, her, she, her eyes were sort of looking down, and she clearly was uncomfortable. Um, but she wanted to tell me what she told me, which was that she had been raped during the war, which was now 20 plus years ago, and that she has no peace, and that she has a hard time living with herself because her perpetrator is the policeman on the corner in her neighborhood who is viewed as an upright, uh, admirable human being. Something is not right with this picture. Uh, and both on the side of accountability, on the side of what she is owed and the price he should pay. But this is, this is the story throughout much of Bosnia and throughout other parts of the world. In Kosovo, on the other hand, as you know, in, in recent years, they've really tried to do something about reparations, and they have come up with um, a, a monetary, um, uh, sort of a, a quasi-pension that could go to women who were violated. Uh, but as you said, uh, it's very difficult for the women who testify because they relive what happened to them, and there are times when they're not viewed as being honest in terms of their situation, and so they don't get the reparations that they deserve. So while there's a real effort in Kosovo, and I admire them for what they're trying to do, um, it's, it's not perfect, as none of these solutions seem to be. And then I think of what Dr. McGuigge said to me. Um, he said, you know, the women who suffer from, from CRSV suffer terribly, and they want to heal. And he said, the thing they tell me most is they want to return to normalcy. They want a market. They want to be who they are again, not what happened to them. And how do we put together a, a reparation that is satisfactory to what those women say to him? Uh, and he sees the worst uh, every single day. So it's a complicated issue, um, but there are people who are caught up in this issue who deserve something better than I think uh, we're able to provide so far uh, in so many places. 
Thank you so much. Thank you to all our panelists and another round of applause to these amazing people. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Thank you.